Well, I spy with my little eye a great big elephant. Kids, can you see the elephant in here? Look around, turn around. Anyone see an elephant? Can anyone spot it? Look closely because there is an elephant in the room. A few months ago, we had one when I filmed the video, but we have one again today. Anyone know where it is? An elephant in the room is something that's present, something right in front of us, something obvious, but something that no one wants to talk about. I wonder if you found the elephant. Where is it? Well, it's actually in our Bible text this afternoon. Alcohol. Let's just say it. Jesus makes alcohol. There, I've said it. Pastor Dave has said it. For Jesus' first miracle, his first sign, here in the gospel, he makes wine for a wedding party. It's right there in the text. Jesse just read it. Now, normally preachers start out with the sermon points in the beginning of the sermon. You know, we give you the sermon points, maybe after the introduction. Why do we do that? Well, we do that so that you know where we're headed, so that you have some framework for the sermon. It helps give you understanding. Well, I want to do the opposite today. I want to tell you what is not the point of the text in the introduction. I want to tell you what is not the point, and I have four, I have four not points of the text So let me just give this to you. You don't have to write them down if you don't want because they're not the points of the text, okay? So kids, you can just forget these if you want, not the points. Number one, the point of this text is not about whether drinking wine is a good thing or not. Number two, the point of the text is not whether you should leave this gathering today and stock up on supplies at the nearest liquor store, okay? I know who you are. Number three, the point is not to get you to stop or start drinking alcohol. And number four, this is the big one, number four, finally, the point of this text is not actually about alcohol at all. So those are my not sermon points today, all four of them. But I thought, because it's here in the text, before we jump into the text as your pastor, let me make a few comments about alcohol so we can get the elephant out of the room and back into the zoo before we start. Okay, the Bible makes a few statements about alcohol. It makes the case on numerous occasions that drunkenness is sin. Very clear on that. We also would think that disobeying a country's laws on drinking would also be sin. But here's what the Bible never does. It never condemns drinking altogether. If drunkenness is sin, then it would seem that simply a drink is not necessarily sin. And we see here, Jesus, God in the flesh, makes Wine. On another occasion, the Apostle Paul actually tells his disciple Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach ailment. There seems to be freedom in Christ as to whether we drink or not, as long as we're guided by the principle of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Maybe you know this verse, whether you eat or drink, or if you do anything, or if you do anything at all, do it for the glory of God. That's got to be our guiding principle, church, for everything that we do. Everything, eating, drinking, anything and everything, our guiding principle must be that we are doing it for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10. So the issue is not necessarily whether we drink or not or what our convictions are on the subject. It's the why. 
It's the why. It's the, the heart behind what we're doing. Are we living with this principle in mind? So when does drinking or not drinking the cause for sin? Well, there's many examples. I can't go through all of them. Remember, this, this sermon is not about alcohol, but certainly one is, is, is when either choice causes others to sin. This often creeps in one or two subtle ways. One, it's when we flaunt our freedoms to drink, or two, when we compel others to share our personal convictions, whether to drink or not, and therefore divide the body of Christ. And so, Redeemer Church, don't flaunt your freedoms if you drink. And Christian who doesn't drink, don't compel others to follow your personal convictions. Well, how do we do this? Well, I only have time for one example of each. Uh, If you drink, it's probably not a good idea to flaunt your freedoms by posting pictures on social media. That's both wise as a witness to our host country, but it's also being sensitive to those who've struggled with drinking or alcoholism in the past. And if you don't drink, it's not a good idea to boast about your your abstinence as if it's a more spiritual option, as if you're more spiritually mature than others who don't drink and you judge them in your heart. No, don't pass judgment as if to say that one is better than the other. Drinking or not drinking is not the barometer of one's spirituality. One's heart, again, is is the, the why behind what we do. That's what's important. So now there are wise reasons to give up drinking here in this country, maybe for ministry reasons, maybe in order to have locals in your home. But let's not boast of our freedoms or our convictions. But let's drink or not drink to the glory of God. Sound good? Does that make sense? That helpful? Okay. Well, now that we've gotten that out of our system and the elephant is back at the Dubai Safari Park, let's dive in. In our text today, we have three actual points. Okay, so these are the points now. You can write these down. (laughs) You can remember these three points in our text in these 12 verses, chapter 2, Gospel of John. In our text, we'll see, number one, a mess. We're going to see a big mess. Number two, we'll see a miracle. And number three, a manifestation. We'll see a mess, a miracle, and a manifestation. The three actual points here in John Chapter 2. So first, a mess. Verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's going to go on all the way until the end of chapter 12. In these chapters, we're going to see eight different signs or miracles. And remember the purpose of the signs. Remember from the very first sermon, John chapter 20, John tells us John's purpose in these signs, his purpose in choosing these particular miracles is to convince us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so this is the first sign. And on its surface, it's not very complicated, is it? Jesus turns water into wine. Seems simple enough, but there are many layers to this miracle if we delve just a little bit deeper. It's like a television show that's, that's easy enough for a child to enjoy and to understand and even love, but there are quotes, there are, there are jokes, there are deeper meanings that only an adult can fully understand, but both 
enjoy it. Both are satisfied. Here on the surface, we seem to understand the miracle. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing, but there's so much more going on under the surface. So let's look at it. The sign, it happened on the third day from our last passage. Jesus now has five disciples with him. And if we look at all the time markers from chapter 1 and chapter 2, we know that all of this takes place in about one week of time. Jesus has just called these men to follow him. Now he's taking them to a wedding in Cana in Galilee, which is Nathaniel's hometown. It's a very small place. Maybe a hundred people probably, uh, maybe less, a very small town, a tiny village. It's interesting, Jesus chooses the place for his first sign to not be some big global city, to not be in front of some big crowd, but with a smaller group. And by doing this, we have just a little clue that Jesus loves all people, that he cares about all people, and that weddings are special. While there are times he'll go away for prayer, we see that Jesus wasn't a recluse savior. Jesus wasn't a monk. He spent time with people, even in tiny towns, even in insignificant villages in the middle of nowhere, and he even enjoyed a wedding. Jesus, his mom, his disciples were all invited to this wedding, it seems. Perhaps this is a close friend of the family. Maybe it's even a family member. It seems that Mary, Jesus' mother, might have had some role in the wedding. But pretty soon after, the wedding begins, and there is a big mess. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. A mess. A wedding celebration would have lasted a few days, perhaps even a week. This would have been a major catastrophe, a huge problem, a huge embarrassment to the groom. In an honor and shame culture, this was a mess. The groom would have spent much of the past year, this, this uh, time akin to our engagement uh, season, this would have been an important time where the groom would have been proving himself to the bride's family that he could care for her and he would build her a house. Most of the, the time, it would be attached to his family's house and he would spend that time building that house. He would spend the time preparing and planning and providing for this wedding celebration. And it should have been a, a big celebration fit to the occasion. But now this was a disaster. I even read that in some cases with weddings gone bad in that time that the bride's family could actually take back gifts and that there could even be lawsuits because when you were hosting a wedding, you were to provide for everyone. They had traveled there and that was part of the expectation. And so this would have been utter embarrassment. And wine was the main drink of, 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 the, of the time period. It would often be diluted. Water itself could have been dangerous, could have been often would have been dirty, and so you'd mix them together. Uh, you'd mix the wine, you'd mix the water. Still alcohol, but not as strong as what you might have most of the time today. Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, there's no more wine. There's, there's, there's no more drink. It's all out. Now, why did she come to Jesus? Why did she tell him, well, we don't know. Maybe she was helping. Maybe, maybe she was in charge somehow. Well, why Jesus specifically? She hadn't seen him do a miracle before that we, that we know of. This was going to be his first sign. Well, could she have been merely informing him? Probably more than that. With her husband, Joseph, likely to have been passed away, Jesus would have been her main support as her oldest child. And you can imagine that Jesus had the right solution when 
ever anything went wrong, probably even as a 12-year-old. He just knew what to do. Jesus would have been, would have been a support to her. And so maybe Mary had gone to him many times before. At least she wanted some advice. So Mary comes to him, and in verse 4, here's Jesus' response to, to mom. Jesus said to her, woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman, Jesus calls her woman. Now, kids, tweens, teens, let me just stop for a second. Let me give you just a little lesson in being a child. Let me just speak to you for a minute. It is never a good idea to call your mom woman, right, moms? This is never a good idea. It's, I'd go with mommy or mom or mom or mother or mother dearest, the most wonderful lady in my life, something like that. Okay, but don't call her woman. In fact, this is good advice for all of us, right, who still have a mother living. This is not Jesus' advice on how to talk to your mom. Don't say WWJD. <laughs> what would Jesus do and use that as an excuse on talking to your mom this way? There's actually a specific reason here that Jesus does this. And it's not something that we can emulate ourselves. To call your mom woman, first of all, it doesn't sound intimate, does it? But it's important to know Jesus wasn't being rude. He, he actually uses the same term in John 19 when he's on the cross and he gives his mother over to the care of the apostle John. He uses the exact same term. It's more like saying ma'am. He's not being rude, but there's a reason he's not calling her mother here. It's a little bit of a mild but a courteous rebuke to his mom. He's communicating to her and to all of us that from that point on, they'll no longer have that same familial relationship that they had before. She's no longer an authority figure in his life. She had nursed him. She had, she had taught him how to walk. She had raised him. But like all others, including you and including me, she would have to look to Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She would have to look to him to take away her sins. This is a bit of a boundary marker. He's not going to act out of his mother's pressure. He's saying that he is utterly free of any human order or pressure. His guiding light above all else is to do his father's will. And so Jesus asked her, why is this my problem to fix? My hour hasn't yet come. Well, why does Jesus say this now? Mom just wants the wedding to not end in embarrassment. That's all. That's what she wants. And the reason for Jesus' answer to his mom, though, has to be viewed in light of that phrase, my hour. Well, what is this hour? What's well, the hour of his death and exaltation when he will die for sinners and make purification for sins? He talks about this throughout the gospel. Look at these instances in the gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
It's the hour of the cross, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then just a few verses earlier, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Everything, everything in Christ's life was leading up to this final hour, Jesus' final hour, the hour of his death. It's the hour of his death when the Lamb of God would finally on the cross take away the sins of the world. Well, what does this wedding have to do with that hour? Well, I read some of D.A. Carson's writing on this, and he points out that Jesus obviously understood that the prophets characterized the messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally. Jesus also, on other occasions, uses a wedding as a symbol for the consummation of the messianic age. Jesus is saying that the hour of great wine, that his glorification has not yet come. It wasn't time for the cross just yet. He's basically telling Mary, no, it's not time yet. Well, what does Mary do? Well, in verse 5, Mary ends her request. She commands the servants to do whatever Jesus says. She shows the best kind of faith and entrusts that whatever Jesus does will be best. She leaves the work in his hands. This is faith. This is faith. She goes to Jesus with a request. Jesus says, I'll do it in my timing, not yours. I won't do it on the basis of our family connection. But then what does she do? She takes the mild rebuke and she turns it into faith. And this is beautiful. Let's not rush past this. Church, as you know, I've been begging God to heal the nerve pain in my arms. The last two weeks have been horrible. I can't even get the hospital and the insurance company to to work together about a possible surgery. And so we wait. Not our timing, but his I've heard from others of you in these couple weeks who are struggling with chronic pain that just won't go away. One of our dear members just had a lumbar puncture this week. It's about the hundredth procedure she's gone through, and they just can't get the right treatment for her. And so together we wait, not our timing, but his. I know there are singles in this church begging God for marriage. There are couples begging God for children. There are parents begging God for the well-being of their children. There are children struggling with school or friends or fitting in or boredom or temptation. Heard from one friend of mine whose teenage son is struggling with depression. Oh Lord, have mercy. There are others struggling with COVID. We, we have many in our church who are mourning being separated from sick family members back home. But friends, this is faith. This is faith here. This is faith. Jesus, do something. Jesus, do it. Jesus, heal. Jesus, come. Jesus, fix the situation. Jesus, be present. Jesus, do it. Now, it's right to ask. It's right to pray. But we can't demand an answer on our own timing. And it's wrong to turn away and reject Jesus when we don't get what we want when we want it. Jesus knows better. Instead, we do what Mary does. We ask, and then whether we hear an answer or not, we say, Jesus, it's in your hands. Jesus, it's in your hands. Whatever he says goes. So friends, how is your faith? 
How is your faith? Maybe the Lord hasn't answered your prayers. I've been waiting 15 years to be healed from physical pain and bouts of depression. I want to throw a ball. I want to sit for just one second without pain in my body. But will I leave Jesus? Will I abandon him? No. No. No way. No way will I leave him. And I don't know what you're going through, friend. I know there is much suffering. We're going to talk about that again next week from the book of Habakkuk. I know there's much suffering here in this church. But we don't leave Jesus. We don't leave Jesus. Why don't we leave Jesus? Well, because he loves us and because he is in complete and utter control over our lives. He knows, he cares, and he is there. I love Mary's answer here in this text in verse 5. To Jesus telling her, not yet, not yet, not yet. She says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. This is a deep trust. It's a deep trust. Carson also points out in in John's gospel uh, that this scene here is often a pattern that we see on multiple occasions throughout the book, that Jesus initially will refuse a request for assistance at times, and then he proceeds in his own way to answer the request, often in response to a further demonstration of faith. We see this chapter 4. Chapter 4 of John's gospel, we see this with the official son. And then in chapter 11, oh, I love chapter 11. We see this with Lazarus, a refusal and then an answer. Jesus does it here in verse 3. Mary approaches Jesus as his mother. She's rebuked. But then in verse 5, she's rebuked as a mother. But in verse 5, she she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. She has no idea what Jesus is going to do. She has no idea what Jesus is going to be up to, but she believes And then Jesus does it. Friends, Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is going to fix this big mess here in this text with a miracle. That's the second point that we see this afternoon. First, a big mess. Big mess. Number two, we see a miracle. It's interesting. Mom asks. Jesus says it's not time yet. And then, like I said, he does the miracle after all. We're thinking, if if he knew he was going to do the miracle after all, why didn't he just tell her? Uh, yes, dear mother, the wine has ran, run out. I've been monitoring the situation all night long, and I've been watching the wine supply. It's been lowering all evening. I know this could be a real embarrassment to the groom, and so I'm going to take care of it at just the right time. Why didn't he just say that? Well, again, even while Jesus planned on doing the miracle, he's making it abundantly clear to us that physical relationships wouldn't control him. And even his family had no special advantage. All need to come to Jesus as Savior, as their Lord and Savior. He does something similar in chapter 7. His brothers encourage him, go down to the feast, manifest yourself. He says, it's not my hour. And then he does it. Jesus does the miracle, cleans up the big mess. How does he do it? Verses 6 through 8. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of persecution, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. These stone water jars were used for purification rites. This wasn't drinking water. You you were thirsty. You didn't go to these 
huge stone containers. Most families probably owned one, maybe two, but they must have borrowed some for the big occasion. They had six of them laying around. The servants, they would likely draw the water out, maybe with a pitcher, and they would dump the, the water on your hands as you came in for the evening. This was a, a ceremonial washing. You are now clean to join the meal, to join uh, the wedding. Maybe there's some, some leftover water from earlier in the evening. Maybe this is some backup water in case someone came in late. But there is a significant symbolism here. Jesus is about to use the water that the Jewish population thought purified them. And he's going to turn that water into wine. It was an important message that pots, those, those pots, they represented the old order and old covenant. And Jesus' message is that he came to fulfill the old covenant and to fulfill the law to make something better, to, to usher in something greater. Jesus is giving them insight into what this hour would be like. He would take the purification rites of Israel and he would replace them with a new way of purification. And we'll eventually see that that new way is with his blood. He says in John 6, 55, that his blood is the true drink and that unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you can't have life. Well, there would be no, be no need for ritual cleansing. Now, Christ's death would be the final and ultimate purification for sins. There's only one way to be clean before God, not with purification water, but with Christ's blood. Revelation 7.14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, the glory of Jesus is that he alone, once and for all, made purification for sins. We don't turn to ritual we don't turn to sacraments. We don't turn to good works. We turn to Jesus. Our friends, Jesus is the only one who can purify you from your sins. No ritual, no law, no good work, only Jesus. It's the only way. And so Jesus, he, he tells the servants to, to take those six big stone water jars and to fill them up to the brim, to the top. He didn't want anyone to be able to say that he just added some wine to the water. He wanted there to be no room for the addition of anything other than the water. It also communicated that the time of ceremonial purification was totally finished, that the new order was here. And then he tells the servants to bring some of that liquid to the master of the feast. This is basically the, the chief waiter, the MC for the evening, the master of ceremonies, and he, he gets it. This MC gets it, verse 9 and 10. Look at these verses. Look at what happens. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Well, Jesus had turned water into wine. Sign number one, complete. Now, it's interesting. This is an incredible miracle. It's an incredible miracle, but John just kind of tells us that it happens, right? The master of the feast tastes the wine, and it was good. The best of the evening. Maybe the best he's ever had. We don't know. It was, it was really good, I'm sure. When exactly does the miracle happen? We don't know. Did it happen in the pots? Did it change as the server was bringing it to, 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 the, uh, 
MC or right before he drank it. We don't actually have the details here. What does Jesus do to turn the water into wine? We don't know. But it's incredible to think about what would have to happen to make this miracle complete. I mean, how do you make wine normally? Well, first of all, it takes a lot of time. You've got to take seeds and you have to grow grapes. You need water. You need sunlight. And then once they're grown, you've got you've to take the grapes and you've got you've to smash the grapes. Or you can do it that really cool way where you kind of get barefoot and kind of stomp the grapes. Have you ever seen this done? I've always wanted to do this, not necessarily to make wine, but because it looks like a good stress reliever just to stomp on grapes barefoot. I think that would be amazing. But you get the idea. This is no quick, no easy task, but it just kind of happens here. And it's not what I would do if this was my first sign, if this was my first miracle. I would have stood up on the table in the middle of the wedding. I would have put on my black cape, my black top hat. I would have had my magic wand, and I would have put my arms in the air and the wand in the air, and I would have yelled out, let there be wine. And the water would have just turned to wine right in front of everyone. And voila, the best wine. Now that would be making a splash, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. Think about what it would take for water in that moment to turn to wine. It would have been miraculous. We can't understate that here. Molecules would have had to be changed. This is not just the rearranging of atoms. Water doesn't have the correct molecules to just be rearranged to turn into wine. New atoms would have had to be formed in the jars. The miracle had to involve creation of new carbon and new nitrogen atoms and potassium. And you can't do this in the chemistry lab if you tried. Oxygen never becomes carbon. Carbon doesn't become nitrogen. And water doesn't become wine. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. And certainly not the good wine, not the best wine, one that's been aged. But that's what happens here. In that very moment, Jesus turns purification water, this dirty water, into the best wine of the night. Well, Jesus' ways aren't our ways. He doesn't do it the way I would. He doesn't stand on the table. His ministry and his miracles, they're going to start here. And you know who's going to see it? It's just his disciples and it's the servants, right? The servants see, but the party doesn't see. Now, his miracles, his ministry is going to start out with a few people. It's going to slowly grow. But this is a stunning miracle. Jesus makes something completely new. That's the point. That's the point. His death and resurrection are going to usher in a completely new age. The old is gone. And the new has come. The Messiah has arrived. The Messiah that they've been waiting for for years. The Savior that they're praying for to come. The one the prophets pointed to. He's here. He's here. He, he puts away the old. He brings in the new. He turns water into wine. You see, friends, this passage is not about alcohol. It's about Jesus. The passage is about Jesus who brings in the kingdom and who comes to save his people from their sins. That's the first sign water into wine. There's a big mess at the wedding. Jesus performs a miracle, and that leads to a manifestation, part of which we've already seen and we've already talked about. But that's the third point in this text. Mess, miracle, manifestation. Verses 11 and 12. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. 
So in the miracle, Jesus' glory, it says right there, was, was manifested. It's made clear to the servants, to the disciples, Jesus truly can make something new. The manifestation of his glory and turning water into wine, it reminds us of the prophets of old when they were often confirmed in their authority utilizing water. We see this, you might remember, on several occasions with Moses. Exodus 7, Moses turns water into blood. Exodus 14, the the, the Red Sea parts. Exodus 17, waters called forth from a rock. You can look at Joshua 4 with Joshua, Elijah in 1 Kings 18. You can see Elisha in 2 Kings 5 and chapter 6. The authority over the prophets over water. Christ is showing himself to be the greatest prophet, the true prophet, and not just a prophet, but divinely the Son of God who is worthy of our faith. See, friends, our faith is not grounded in the maybe. Our faith is not grounded in, in perhaps Jesus could do it. Now, Jesus is the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world and who has the power to make water into wine, who has the power to heal the leper, who has the power in John chapter 11 to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, water's not the only thing Jesus can change. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is all-knowing. The manifestation of his glory here means he can change your marriage and make it new. He can change your family situation. He gives us strength to battle addiction alcoholism, prescription drugs, lust, greed, arrogance. Jesus can change water into wine, and Jesus can change you. Jesus can change your heart. Jesus can take a sinner and save them by his grace and by his power. He can change you. He can change your heart. He can change the heart of that family member you want to be saved. He can change your circumstances. And notice in our passage, Jesus doesn't just change things. He goes above and beyond with his goodness and lavish grace. The manifestation of his glory is remarkable. The master of the feast not only attests to the wine, he says it's good wine, and there's now 120 gallons of it, six huge stone jars. There is an overabundance of this good wine. Now, normally, what you would do at a wedding or a party is that you would bring the good stuff out first, and then after people had drank a bit and had a party, then you would bring up the leftover wine, maybe the less fermented wine, the less expensive wine. It's a bit like when you have someone coming over for dinner, uh, but everybody's eating the food, and then a couple of others come to the dinner, and there's no food left. What do you do? Well, you open up your refrigerator to grab some of the backup biryani from two nights before, And you serve that to them. It wasn't the fresh buttered chicken of the evening, but it's something. But here, at the end of the party, you have the heavenly buttered chicken, the most delicious chicken coming out at the end of the party. And they had the best wine at the end. I wonder what the groom is thinking at this point in the wedding. Did you think about that as you studied it in your community groups? What's the groom thinking? Everybody's looking at him. What's his response? Uh, yeah. Yeah, everyone, uh, it's the best wine now. Yeah, just like we planned it. Yeah, it's the good stuff. Sure. Oh, the guy had no clue. He had no clue. He was clueless. He had no idea. The master of the feast says, great work. The groom's like, yeah, thank you very much. Well, Jesus had provided far more than the groom could have imagined. And the groom had no idea. Jesus just lavishes it upon the party. The bridegroom had failed. I mean, the wine had run out. It was his fault. 
But we see here that Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. That Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He's the one who provides everything. All grooms on earth will fail. And for that matter, all of us will fail. We've all sinned. We've rebelled against God. And we've turned away from him. We've let each other down. And we've turned from God. But Jesus is a perfect, all-providing bridegroom. Better than anyone can provide. Jesus never fails to give us not just what we need, but more than we need. And the fact that this first miracle is at a wedding, it's not an accident. A wedding has huge implications. It says something about Christ's love for the church. Because we know where the world is going. It's going to one big wedding where we, the bride of Christ, the church, are joined together with him forever. Now, friend, all of us can come to him. The life-giving wine of his death in our place never runs out. Never runs out. In this miracle, Jesus is revealing that he's the creator of all things, that he's the purifier of all things, and that he is the better bridegroom. This abundance of wine we see throughout the Old Testament represents the joy in the last days. Jeremiah 31, Hosea 14, Amos chapter 9. By making more wine than the wedding needs, Jesus was showing his power to bring about the kingdom of God. And the disciples believed. They obviously don't understand everything at this point, but their faith is being confirmed even in this first sign, even in this small, insignificant town called Cana, as the story ends in verse 11, where it began in verse 1, with the mention of this small, tiny town. Well, Jesus manifested his glory in this place, but the greatest manifestation of his glory would soon be revealed in its greatest measure on the cross and in the resurrection. Until then, Jesus is going to share seven more signs. This is number one. We're going to see seven more signs before his private ministry and before his march to the cross. These signs are there to convince us that Jesus is the Savior and that eternal life is found in him. Well, friends, this is the first sign. Do you believe? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is the better bridegroom, that Jesus is the better bridegroom who will never fail us nor forsake us. Oh, Father, help our hearts believe. Father, help us to trust you. Would we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength? Oh, Father, we thank you that Jesus has swallowed up death and has given us new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.